Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the cross. You know, we gather here for worship, and it's, it's right uh, in the center. Back there, I hope we see it. I hope we think about it. Because that's what our faith is all about, what you have done for us on that cross. So uh, as we're led by, uh, by Easter, uh, by, the, by the dates uh, to the cross, I pray you lead our mind and our heart to the cross to really... Uh, know what it means uh, to experience the life that it brings and that we would be we would be thankful we would be uh, even joyful and just saying we are people of the cross uh, that we don't have to save ourselves because you have and a lot of us are just so Just, just so into our self-salvation efforts. And that may be work, school, relationships. I just pray we know more what you have done for us on the cross uh, in this season uh, leading up to it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you all. If you would, have a seat. Uh, thankful again, as always, to our, our worship team for directing us to worship. If you have your Bible... You can turn to Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to read in just a moment the passage, verse 47 through 56. It's really talking about the arrest of Jesus. We are in the season of Lent. You have heard us say that, highlight that. Often, I know I grew up thinking about Lent as it was just something to, uh, to give up. You need to give up something. I've, I've said that, you know, give up uh, chocolate, or my mom, God love her, would give up Dr. Pepper's. Uh, big deal, I know. And, uh, you know, it's so much more than that. We, uh, my wife and I, I probably lose my man card at this, but, you know, I mean, you know the deal. Not that uh, I ever had it. Um, uh, watched a movie last night. Uh, didn't know it was about Lent, even. Uh, Chocolat. Uh, if I said that right. Anybody seen that movie? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Figured you'd seen it, Jill and Dobby. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Okay. Uh, it's really quite good. And it was in, it was in Lent. I actually, uh, I was like, this, this is kind of, kind of a good Lenten movie. Uh, and chocolat, it's a French word for chocolate. And, you know, it, it really made the, uh, the church look pretty bad, uh, pharisaical. But it actually had a lot of gospel uh, elements uh, to it that... Uh, Kind of surprised me. Anyway, I hadn't seen it. Um, my wife really wanted to see it. Uh, no, she didn't. It was my suggestion. So, uh, to be fair. And, uh, but it was fun. And, it, you know, it just made me think about, yeah, I mean, often we see Lent as, and often we see Christianity as something, you know, we have to give up so much. And it is much about sacrifice. But I think we really miss uh, the joy, uh, the beauty of, of Christianity, of living into our faith of connecting with others, you know, talking about just announcements. We really just really want to try to tee people up uh, to connect uh, with others and to neighbors and nations. And that's, I think, a big, uh, I think it's, that's a big role the church should play is really teeing people up uh, to use their gifts. We had a, a small group uh, before church talking about God's gifts, that God's gifted each and every one of you and discovering those gifts so Lent should be, it should be a thoughtful time 
And I think the center of that thinking and, and, and feeling, too, is what does the cross mean? So what we're doing with the, with the teaching uh, leading up to Easter week, Good Friday, is kind of asking that question over and over again. What does the cross mean? And I believe what it means is really uh, the title of uh, what's on your program, what we're, we're talking about in this Lenten season. It really means that uh, the last dark night uh, occurred the night before Jesus was crucified. Now, all of us, and I've had these and you've had these, have what Christians have historically called dark nights of the soul. Okay? Dark nights of the soul. Worry, anxiety, uh, loss, loss of loved ones, fear. Uh, it can be very prevalent, uh, particularly when, and there's something literal, visceral about when it, it gets, it's dark at night. But the truth of Christianity, if you believe the gospel, if you, uh, if you know what Jesus did on the cross... That night was really the last dark night because on the cross, sin, darkness, the devil, all were defeated. It's a biblical truth. That's the gospel. And so, yes, we go through many ups and downs, many, quote, last, uh, what we think of as last dark nights, but it really isn't. If you know the gospel, if you know uh, the truth, that Christ has has defeated sin and darkness, and he's there and he's present for you. I had a, well, I was going to highlight this later in the sermon, but I had a kind of sort of a dark night this, this past week, and I was laying in bed, and I had some anxiety. Uh, I hate anxiety, but I have it, you know, if I'm frank. And I was worried about a situation, and God just, I mean, he does speak to you, but, you know, the words came, he's like, you know, go to sleep, because I don't sleep, okay? God does not sleep. God doesn't. God is working when we sleep. And it's kind of like, you can rest. And I didn't go to sleep. I got some good sleep that night. So, you know, if we really consider what the cross means, it is, it is the last dark night. Now, I think that often, though, a problem that we can have is, you know, you think, I know when I first think about the cross, I think about the crucifixion, uh, the bloodiness of it, you know, what it was, what it was like. And we can be moved, and I've seen this happen a lot with the Good Friday service and in other people's lives in other ways, moved by what happened on the cross and still not know what it means. Uh, for example, I was with another pastor up in North Mississippi uh, last week, and we were actually turkey hunting, and we didn't see anything, and then he kills a turkey yesterday, uh, which, you know, but we're going to go again next week. And we were talking about, he said, man, I'm baptizing somebody over Easter, and I was like, that's great, you know, tell me the story. He's like, well, he's like, you know, well, you'll believe this. But he's like, Ash Wednesday, and we do an Ash Wednesday service here. He's like, Ash Wednesday, I always show the last 10 minutes of the Passion. And he said this, you'll love it. He's like, gets them every time, man. The last 10 minutes of the Passion, little little preacher's uh, inside trick there. And uh, he said, yeah, this one girl's so moved, and, you know, she wants to be, and look, that's legitimate. I'm not, I'm not saying it's not, it's the Holy Spirit works through it. But I love how he said, get some every time, man. And maybe I should show the last 10 minutes of the Passion. We'll see. But if you've seen the Passion, I mean, there's a lot of uh, explicit blood. I mean, the, the director wanted to show, you know, uh, the reality of what it might have been like. And it is moving, thinking about the suffering. I, I did an Ash Wednesday service. I remember this because we were going through what we called, we, we called it the, the Dark Ages. My wife and I were suffering through, well, we know about three miscarriages, but I remember the Ash Wednesday service 2012 when I did it, and I, I guess I was just in a dark place myself 
because it was at a, an old office uh, down it was over in Fonder, and I did an Ash Wednesday service. And I remember that, that service highlighting some of the aspects of the crucifixion, some of the, the gory details. And some people were moved, but uh, my wife, who, who's wiser, and I think some other folks said, man, why would you have to get so graphic there? And, you know, I was like, well, I didn't... I didn't know that I was, but I, I guess, I guess, yeah, I kind of was graphic with some of the details, and uh, and, I, and maybe I wasn't as wise, or maybe I still am not wise as a preacher, pastor. But uh, if you really read about the crucifixion, it's it's pretty tough. It's it's pretty pretty bloody, pretty gory, pretty pretty brutal, and people can be moved by that. I say that the danger is moved by the emotions of that uh, event, by the details, and not know what it means. What's fascinating to me is if you read through the gospel stories, the narratives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they don't really spend time on the details of the crucifixion. I mean, you don't, you don't, nowhere they say that the crown of thorns was placed on his head and, you know, blood ran down his cheeks, which probably, they don't deal with that. It's interesting. They want us to know, they wanted the, the readers then and now to know what the cross means. And so every uh, narrative that we're reading in the Sundays leading up, they're trying, and, and we're focused on Matthew, okay? And what we're doing, we started with the Last Supper, and we're going through the last dark night. Uh, pretty much verse by verse, although we won't hit every verse, up to the crucifixion. And so today it's the arrest. But they're trying to help us understand what the cross means. So in this passage you read, verse 47 there are three statements that Jesus makes. One to Judas, one to Peter, and one to the crowd. And I think they highlight aspects of what the cross means practically for you, uh, for us in our life. When we say we're people of the cross, when we say we're Christians, what does that mean? So let's read verse 47 through 56. Again, this is right two weeks ago, Lord's Supper, last week the Garden of Gethsemane. Now Jesus is getting arrested. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. A large mob with swords and clubs was with him from the chief priests and elders of the people. His betrayer had given them a sign. The one I kiss, he's the one. Arrest him. So immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Friend, Jesus asked him, why have you come? Then they came up, took hold of Jesus, and arrested him. At that moment, one of those with Jesus reached out his hand and drew his sword. He struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. Then Jesus told him, put your sword back in its place, because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot call on my father? And he will provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels. How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I used to sit teaching in the temple and you didn't arrest me. But all this has happened so that the writings of the prophets would be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him, and ran away. So Jesus is getting arrested, and he makes three statements. First, to Judas, 
to Peter, and then to the crowd that had gathered. And I think those statements, again, can show us some things that the cross means for our life, for your life. And I think they can show us a committed life, an upside-down life, and a calm life. Three statements, two people, one group, three points. Committed life, an upside-down life, a calm life. A committed life. I think this is... This is uh, tied in with what he says to Judas. And, and he only makes a very, uh, a very uh, simple, short statement. Friend, Jesus asked him, why have you, why have you come? Okay? What's all that about? Judas is Judas really an interesting, fascinating character. Uh, if you know the, the work, really the artistry or, or the ministry, I guess, of this gentleman, John Maxwell. And we've had him here and he goes around or he, he has and will uh, take a character in Scripture and do a, uh, a one-person, almost kind of a, a play about what it might have been like in their life. We've done plays here, and the character of Judas in the play, we've done plays on Good Friday. Uh, it's just a fascinating character about like what was going through his mind. You know, and usually Judas is either seen as you know, the most evil person in the world or just totally a dupe, Okay? For example, if and some of you high school students may have done, had to read Dante's Inferno uh, in high school. I hadn't read it since. But Dante's Inferno is about hell. And there are different layers or levels of hell. And at the very bottom of hell, there's a lake of ice. And underneath the lake of ice, anybody know who's there? Anybody? Anybody read Dante? Who? Who? I had one person raise their hand. Okay. She, yeah. Who? Judas. Judas. Yeah. Well, well Judas is there. He's like the worst of the worst, most evil. Judas is at the, at the very worst level of hell. But then other uh, narratives really depict him as kind of a dupe, just kind of used and abused by the, the priests who were really the bad guys and the evil people. I think he's neither. I think he's neither. And I think, that, I think that's true. And a lot of the things that I've read about him, that he, uh, although he was used, he was... He could, have been, uh, he could have been any of the disciples, the betrayer, that is. Why do I say that? Well, if you look back in, earlier in chapter 26, when Jesus says someone is going to betray me, verse 22, deeply distressed, each one began to say to him, surely not I, Lord. Interesting. And I think that's so because the disciples knew their own heart. And... Part of the gospel narrative shows how the disciples were really kind of in it for themselves in a lot of ways. You know, James and John wanted the mom, wanted them to sit by each other's side. Uh, Peter had a lot of, a lot of conflict. I mean, they were, they were selfish. They were broken, just like us. And so the disciples were like, you know, it could be, could be any of us. So I think Judas is neither the most evil, and, you know, he wasn't duped. I think Judas was, I think Judas was a very selfish person, like any of us could be. I think Judas made a conscious decision. He was going to sell, use the word, sell Jesus instead of serve him. And I think often that's the case in, it can be the case in my life. Look, I'm not just saying y'all, but any of our lives. Sell something. Think about it like a stock. Some of you, some of you work in stocks, trading. When a stock is profiting you, that's good. When it doesn't profit you, you sell it. If Jesus is profiting us, we'll serve him. If he doesn't profit us, uh, we'll sell it. 
We're not uh, totally, I would argue, uh, committed. We're not all in. If it profits us uh, to go to church or be involved in some way, we're active. If maybe not, we're, we're less active. I think that can be a real, real issue for us. And I would, I would challenge you, I'd encourage you to ask yourself, you know, how do, I, how do I sell Jesus? I mean, use an example of my life. You know, prayers, dark nights of the soul, ask, requests, you know, get what maybe I desire, but then don't. You know, do you say, well, I'm just not going to make time. I don't, you know, to the, to the nth degree, it's like, you know, I just don't have time for this Christian faith. I mean, I'll, I'll do it because it might, you know, down here I, I need to for to look a certain way, to look apart, but uh, really and truly, if I'm not getting anything, not getting a profit out of it, you know, sell Jesus. You know, we, we sometimes can use Jesus to really uh, fit the kingdom of our perfect life. Sometimes here in our world, church is like one piece of the puzzle uh, that goes into the overall per- puzzle of our perfect life. And I think that's, how it can be. So a committed life, what the cross means is that we should be fully committed, all in, totally in. Judas, he's like, how do you know Jesus was, Judas was selling Jesus? Well, what is interesting, verse, uh, verse 40, when Judas comes up and says, greetings, rabbi, what that means, okay, in, a, in the Hebrew culture, uh, the teachers, who Jesus was the teacher of the disciples, the rabbi, the students would never come and address the rabbi first. It was just totally disrespectful. What Jesus was doing here is coming up and saying, I'm just as good as you. He was that initiator. He was, and you, probably some of you have had experiences with people. They just want to, you know, they want to assert that maybe they're not just as good as you. They're, they're better than you. Judas saying, you know, the, uh, the student is no longer the student here. You're no longer my mentor. You're no longer my teacher. You know, I'm the guy. That's what was going on with Judas. And Jesus' statement, whenever friend is used, and often Jesus would say friend going through the gospel narratives, friend denotes, it's kind of like a soft warning, a sensitive warning. It's almost like saying, you need to be careful what you're doing here, Judas. Okay. You're, not, you're, you're not going the right way here. Friend. It's a soft warning. And Jesus knows, I mean, he's, he's not committed. The gospel writers, the gospel writers would always, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, there, there's a, a notion that they have contrasted, compared Judas with Mary. Not Mary, mother of Jesus, Mary sister of Lazarus. And I think it's in John, I don't know off the top of my head, but John 11 or 12, okay? Mary anoints the feet of Jesus, not Mary the mother, sister of Lazarus. And she just, you know, pours this family heirloom, this really expensive uh, container. And Judas is there, and John highlights Judas. Like, what are you doing with this? This is probably, probably family inheritance, many people have argued. And Judas says, and we could have used that to give into the poor. And Jesus then says, you know, the poor you'll have with me, but she is anointing me for my burial. And so Mary, Mary of Bethany, sister of life, she's all in. She's like, I'll give you, 
give you my family inheritance. Maybe she didn't even ask her brother Lazarus or who he would raise from the dead. So I'll give you everything. A committed life. What the cross means is we have to be committed, a committed life. How do you do that? You look at the cross. And to get past, kind of push past the, we know the, the Christian, the Sunday school story of the cross. Think about it, and it's got to get personal, guys uh, and girls. It's got to get personal. The cross, he did it for you personally. Jesus Christ was all in. He gave his life. Uh, the gospel, uh, the Bible, uh, the teaching, going through uh, what Paul said, what this means is that he gave his life in a brutal way for you personally. He committed everything for you personally. Yes, we gather together as a church, but part of the reason we gather is to hear that word that he died for you personally. Some of you may have had someone give their life for you. I have not yet, except for Christ. Okay, That's why we can be all in, committed. No either or. Uh, the second statement Jesus makes is to Peter. Now, it doesn't say here Peter, but Luke says the guy who pulled the sword was Peter, cut off the guy's ear. And here Jesus says, put your sword back in its place. All who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you not think I can call on my father? He will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels. It's like, put away your sword. But it's interesting, it said, all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Now, historically, before you know, that's the verse that pacifists have always used, Christian pacifists, to say, you know, I'm not going to go to uh, war. I think there's, you know, another probably well-known, well, we Mentioned the passion, but then uh, what's the Ridge movie? The Ridge movie, the pacifist? Come on, help me out. Come on, what is it? Huh? Axel Ridge, that's right, that's right. It's pacifist, okay? I don't think that's what Jesus is necessarily talking about here, frankly, because I know so many uh, godly men and women who choose to serve, and a lot of, and this is not to get off much on this tangent, it's another conversation, but you know, who, who have said biblical folks, You've said, you know, justified a just war and going into conflict. But that's been used for being a pacifist, so it's fair to say. What Jesus is saying here, the sword is really the world's sword. What I mean by the world's sword is the world's power, the world's forces. A lot of times it's tied up in, uh, in economics, money, in military, might, power, uh, in political power. Uh, Jesus is saying all who take up this sword and who want to give somebody the sword, okay, in that way, uh, will perish by it. And so this would show for us what the cross means is an upside-down an upside life. Upside-down. Because a lot of you, and me too, for much of my life, and I struggle with this now, think that you know, military might, political might, economic might, are the ways to wield the sword. In this world, whether us as individuals or or groups or, or nations, and Jesus is saying here, it's upside down. The way of the cross is upside down. How? I would list three ways. I think there is first and foremost, really, probably most important point that I would say: upside down salvation. I prayed this earlier. All of us, me included, me included or working on our different self-salvation efforts, goals. You know, it could be 
you know, building a great career. It could be building an, an effective ministry. Okay? It, it could be in, in family as a stay-at-home mom, which is a wonderful thing to do. It could be in marriage. All of us have our self-salvation projects, and all of them will ultimately fail because they will not bring us, God knows this, and God's a lot smaller, they will not bring us the fulfillment that we seek, the purpose that we seek. What Christianity is all about, upside-down salvation, is to- so the world would say, hey, you've got to, and look, setting goals is good, and you've got to work hard, and working hard is good, and you've got to, you can, but the world is kind of preaching this language that you can save yourself. The gospel is upside down in saying that, yes, work hard, use your God-given gifts, but you can't save yourself, but you have a Savior. It's Jesus Christ. He took sin, death, your sin individually. All, I've said this the last couple of weeks. You know, the reason there's grace, the reason that someone could come to Christ at the last moment is because Jesus Christ, we talked about this in the garden, took on the, all the evil, all the sin of all time, before and since, on him, on the cross. So that God is totally just. There's justice. It happened on the cross. And we can have grace. And if you don't really, I think if you don't get that upside down salvation and that Jesus substituted himself for you, your life is not going to be transformed. I'm not saying you're not going to go to heaven there, okay? But if you really don't get this, this huge nugget of the diamond, the gospel, to use some metaphors there, it's, I mean, I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm not saying you're not going to be in heaven. But the life transformation that joy, that beauty, that someone substitute himself for you, I don't, I don't think your life's going to be transformed. Upside down psychology here too in the gospel and Christianity. What do I mean by that? Well, I think you should believe in yourself, okay? I think you should, should be confident, walk in confidence, all that. But the gospel would say, upside down psychology, repent and you will have serene confidence. What do you mean? You say, man, I'm a sinner. Yeah. Man, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of jacked up. I'm messed up. You can, I've, I've done this blankety-blank. You know, upside down is when you're admitting, when you're admitting how bad you are, that in the world's eyes, that does not, bring, that does not elevate you. In the gospel, Christianity, that should elevate you. When you say, you know, I've done this or bad thing, I've sinned in this way. I, I repent. Repent should not lead us to be like dim and grim. Repentance should lead to, I believe, I believe and I believe it to the gospel, serenity and confidence. And that's an upside down way of the way the world thinks. And then there's an upside down way here of changing the world. A lot of us, and especially young folks, I think it's great. You know, man, let's change the world. Yes, let's change the world. The sword to change the world usually is political might, military might, economic might, some combination of that. It's an upside-down way to change the world is the gospel, is the way of the cross, is Jesus. Like how? Because Jesus would say, you want to change the world? Serve. You know, there's only one place that the word leader is in the, uh, in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's in Luke. It's in the Last Supper. And in some translations don't use it as leader. But he said, if you want to be a leader, you serve. 
I was having a conversation with a member today about our, you know, our, our mission statement's always been raising leaders. We've had different tweaks on it. Now, raising le- leaders, raising unlikely leaders who see, love, go. Like, well, you know, that sounds great, but how do you do that? It's really not rocket science. I mean, you can have formal leadership programs that some people like, you know, schools, churches, you know, in informal ways. But the bottom line is you serve. That's the way of the cross. You serve. You serve individuals. You serve a community. You serve a city. You serve the world. You serve. You humbly serve. That's the way of the cross. It's the way of Jesus. And the last thing, and I won't spend a ton of time on this, but the last statement is to the crowd. Way of the cross. What's the cross means? That you should have, Christians should have, a calm life. Remember what I said? What does the cross mean? That's where we started off. Going back, these statements to Judas, to Peter, and now to the crowd. A committed life, an upside-down life. And, and for some folks, that can be hard to make that shift. But I would say, if, when we make that shift, looking at the cross, it does lead to an upside-down life. It does lead to the only true way that human being, and I totally believe this, that human beings can truly flourish, flourish, have joy, life, in this earthly life. But the last one is a calm life. What do you mean by this? Well, you know, he's here with the crowds, verse 55, and he kind of tweaks them. He's like, you know, you're, you're, you're jumping on me now, but, you know, I sat, you know, had, you had every opportunity I was teaching. So he kind of gives a little, Jesus gives a little dig to him, which is interesting. And then the last verse, or part of the last verse I read, said, all the disciples deserted him, and ran away. Again, all, everyone. John, uh, Matthew who wrote this, James, Peter, all deserted him. And then the crowd who weren't his disciples were ready to kill him. What does Jesus say? Well, Jesus remains calm, but he says, verse 56, all this has happened, so the writings of the prophets would be fulfilled. How would this mean a calm life? You see, Jesus calms it. Or he's, you say, well, are you saying as a model? No. What I'm saying is, as bad as it may seem, what you may be going through or have gone through or will go through, as bad as it seems, uh, it's not that bad. As dark as your night may be, it's not that dark. Like, how do you know that? What do you... Later in... In the New Testament, Paul goes through this again. Uh, verse I love, Romans eight twenty eight. All things work together for good. For those that love the Lord, called according to his purpose. Sometimes I translate that a different way. There are no accidents in Christianity. The point being, everything is in God's plan, is in God's purpose. As bad as things may look, they're not that bad. God's in control. We can sleep. God doesn't have to sleep. God's working when you and I sleep and can rest. There's a great story, again, kind of Sunday school story, but I love it. Second Kings chapter 6. And it's Elisha, not Elijah, Elisha. And they're going to battle in the city called Dothan. And Elisha prays that the eyes would be opened the reason I tell this is because Jesus talks about the 12 legions of angels. 
that he could have at his disposal. Elisha prays, would, would the eyes be open to see how the Lord's fighting for them? And all around in the trees there are legions, I believe chariots of fire, of angels. I, I believe that literally. I believe the Bible literally. And I believe that's not just possible that that happens to this day. What's also interesting is that the city of Dothan is noted for something else in the Old Testament. It was another Sunday school story where Joseph got thrown in the well by his brothers. Remember that story? Before he went to Egypt, and he was, he was young, he was immature, he bragged a lot, they threw him in the well. And he didn't see God working at that point. But so much later in his life, when his brothers came and pretty much begged for help, and they didn't initially recognize him, and then he revealed himself, and he said something so interesting. I don't know if you remember this, but he said, Joseph said to his brothers, what you meant for ill or evil, God meant it for good. I think that's so often the case in believer's life. And maybe it's other people, and maybe it's just the brokenness of the world. Uh, that God twists things around that we might initially think are, could be ill or, or evil, and God will use it for good. And because of that, we can have a calm life. Last thing I would say, uh, the most despicable thing in this time in, hi- in history, the most evil thing, the most brutal thing, was the cross. And now it is primarily... Arguably, uh, the, and I would own this, the symbol of our faith because that's where, that's where the, the deal went down. It's where salvation occurred on the cross. And Paul writes about this a lot, that the foolishness of the world, the craziness of the world, the wickedness of the world, God has turned on its end to make it, I believe, the most beautiful thing because it denotes, it means yours, hopefully, and my salvation. God did that. So whatever's going on in your life now, you can be calm. Whatever's going on in your life that you say, man, I'm, I'm just laid low. Hey, the lower he, he lays you, higher he's going to raise you. Believe that. That's the way of the cross. Uh, would you receive the way of the cross? You can do so as we take communion here in a moment. But also... Would you take it a step further? Maybe you said, man, you know, I'm a Christian. Then I'd like you to think about, do I have this committed life? Am I living an upside-down life? Do I have a calm life? The way of the cross leads to those. I want to have them. I want all of us to have them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we take communion, I pray convict us. A lot of us, I know, uh, a lot of us, I know, have what we call salvation. We're saved. Some may not. Some, some don't. I pray that we see the way of the cross. I pray they see what you have done for them. And then for the rest of us, others, I just convict us about how committed we are, how upside down we are. And sometimes, maybe most importantly, how calm we are in situations. We can be all those things because of the cross. Because of you, Jesus, not, not, a, not just a two pieces of wood symbol, but you, Jesus, on the cross. I pray that we would know it more, that we would know the way of the cross, probably we'd walk 
way of the cross in our life to be servants of others and love in just a different way, in a supernatural way. In Jesus' name, amen.